G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Today I had the absolute pleasure, and I'm still a little bit starstruck, of having a super exciting conversation with Professor Gail Whiteford. Please enjoy. I, at the time, was uh, working. I, I didn't uh, go to uni straight after school. I was an exchange student in Indonesia, and that's part of a thread that I'll come back to later in the narrative. Uh, and I was working in an employment service in Darwin, and I came across occupational therapists working at the hospital, and in particular working with Aboriginal. Uh, people who had come in from remote communities and saw that they were often facilitating those groups of people to, to sit outside and do art as part of their treatment uh, process. And I thought that was incredibly cool and I had studied, did art in my final year of high school and my dad, as well as being a, as a teacher, was a painter and an illustrator, so I was really interested in art and I thought that that was Amazing to see art as a therapeutic medium. And I had had applied to do several other things that I deferred, including law. But I got really, and because I was working in an employment office, there was that link with what people were doing and being part of the world of, of work and participation, how powerful that was. So I applied to do occupational therapy in Perth at Curtin. And I also had a friend who had a house there, which I'd have to say was a bit of a deciding factor too. Uh, it wasn't just <laughs> that I knew that occupational therapy was going to be the, the thing for me, but it all came together and I started in 1980 in occupational therapy and it probably was one of those great decisions that I've been very grateful for the rest of my life. Never looked back? No. No. So you've oh no, that's not true. That's not true. Something I had a bit of a professional crisis okay. and nearly did medicine. Oh. <laughs> yeah, oh. that's that's a bad a bad moment. But that's what I was talking to when I did a, a podcast with Ellen Nicholson. I don't know if you know Dr. Ellen Nicholson oh, from yeah. Auckland. She was the same. She was originally trying, wanted to do medicine, and yeah, found herself in in OT instead, and obviously is quite glad of the fact. Yeah, in fact, if you think about the opportunities that you can have in occupational therapy, I, I think the scope is so vast. We're, we're very, very fortunate to have been here in the time that we've been here. Well, me particularly in terms of the history of where the profession was and where it's now at. And I was just doing a workshop in Canberra uh, day before yesterday and I said to the group, and I really do mean this, I don't think there's been a better time to be an occupational therapist. I really mean that. There's so many developments that are so meaningful that have progressed us and our relevance and salience to society where we're in a very good space. I believe it's as though we've come out of adolescence uh, where we've tried on lots of different ways of being, a psychologised way of being, a biomechanical way of being. And finally, really now as adults feel secure in our identity and our 
philosophical groundings and our domain of concern, which is occupation. Yeah, I think we're finally settling into our, our niche instead of trying to you know, you know, test, test the waters of everyone else's. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't need to do that because actually occupation is the most powerful thing that we have to claim and to offer and to change not only people's lives but society more broadly. Definitely, definitely. So when, once you graduated, like, what, was your, where, what sort of places did you work? What was your area of practice? Pardon me. <clears throat> you know, I never wanted to work in a, acute settings particularly, and I, I knew I didn't really want to work in physical rehab. I always had a feeling for working in community, and at that stage really it was through mental health services. So my background was working in community psychiatry as it was then and helping set up group homes and working with people in hostels who had recently come out of long-term institutionalised programs. And I also did part of an art therapy master's program in New York. Okay. And, yeah, got there's the art link. And was doing art therapy as part of my interventions with people but started doing murals and got very interested in, in mural making as a group community activity and, uh, yeah, really enjoyed that. In fact, if I was going to go back to anything, I'd go back to doing murals. That's with awesome. People in yeah. Yeah, I, um, when I was working on the acute unit here in Townsville, we had a one of the not-for-profit organisations used to come in uh, a couple times a year and they'd do a, a massive mural it was it was huge i think they were about five meters long by three meters high or something like down the hallways in the in the unit um yeah and it it was it was one it was cool to see people engage in it while they were actually doing it but then it was cool like a couple of years later and say one of the same people was back in the unit and showing other patients yeah. the bit that they yeah. did and like the, the story that was associated because it was all like just a bit of every like everyone had their little bit and they did whatever they wanted they were allowed to paint whatever they wanted and then but like actually explaining the you know I was doing this and meanwhile such and such yeah. was doing this bit over here and you know we were talking about this like there's a whole story embedded in this humongous painting. Uh-huh. I agree, and I think that with murals there's two narrative threads. One is the uber narrative of the the mural itself and how it came into creation, but then every person involved has their own narrative about their involvement. And it's one of the most gradable, adaptable things you can do. I mean, I had people who, you know, depending on where they're at, their ability level, were doing only very small parts of it or were help ruling lines for the grid or and other mm. people mixing colours. You know, people really of all, all abilities can, can work on murals. But it's that coming together and having co-creating a vision of something and then bringing it into life. It, it is. It transcends, you know, people's experience over time. And like you said, people, I would have people coming back saying, oh, yes, that's what we worked on. And come on, I'm going to show, bringing people and family to show them the mural yeah. that they were part of. They're very, they're very powerful. And that was like once they'd finished, they had like a bit of an opening and brought family and friends to have a look at it. And I think then the next year they did another one and I think that one ended up in the front, in the lobby, I think. But yeah, it was, and just the, like 
it was cool for me to see because I wasn't there doing it with them. I was doing other work and I did that sort of alongside them. But just to see the process and the change in them, even without my input, but sort of knowing how that that happened from an OT sort of perspective. Um, Uh But, yeah, the fact that, you know, he had his little sort of part and it was ingrained in what he painted and the people around him and knowing that the people, you know, the person right next to him would have had, may have had a very different perspective on what was happening purely and simply because the way it was painted, he was facing the other way. Like it may have been a completely different perspective on, on the whole situation. So yeah, Yeah. it was, it was fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting. So to me being just having been in Palestine, Banksy is very uh, prolific there. Uh, Mm -hmm. No, West Bank, and he actually has a hotel there called Walled Off, <laughs> which is interesting. But, you know, there's a lot of Banksy murals in that space, and that's when I, I guess I really got the sense of how mural making also becomes a form of protest and activism. Mm. And people, the people there are really, you know, because people come to see them and, and perhaps, you know, understand a bit about the experience of people on that side of the wall in Palestine. So, yes, another form yet again of, of what the meaning of that is and the narrative can be. But again, again, even though it's, you know, presumably, because I don't know a whole lot about Banksy and I think that's the point, um, even though it's essentially, essentially one sort of person maybe painting it, it's still bringing people together with its own narrative or the narrative that people are actually taking from it or putting into the image or the images that they're seeing. Yeah, sure. Well, it's all occupational at the end of the day, Brock. Yeah. <laughs> it's an occupational narrative because at some point the visual image has gone from the imagination into three-dimensional space or two-dimensional mm. space. But, you know, and so that had to happen by people doing that. Mm. So there's a really powerful doing dimension as well as, whatever other motivation ultimately that the visual image in the form of mural has. But to me, that comes back to the occupational dimension of it. And that aspect of it has always interested in me in that I've never really been big into art, but the concept of art has always fascinated me in that two people can look at the same thing and assign it a meaning or when they add it to their, their schema, it, you know, it might link to something else they've previously seen or known and so it takes on a completely different meaning to me seeing it or the next person seeing it and that, I guess, the concept of art as opposed to the art itself has always always interested me. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I see a lot of people do that with occupations as well and I'm just I, I'm fascinated to see if it's exactly the same or similar process when like with an occupation as opposed to when you know you go and see art or something that you're not originally familiar with and you then assign it that meaning and that that sort of link yeah interest me (laughs) Uh, i have lots of random interests (laughs) (laughs) so are you in mental health your your whole clinical career uh no i also worked in drug and alcohol and uh, no, I really liked that. I really liked it. 
Yeah, uh, because again, that's such an occupational space. Yeah. When you when you think about it, you know what is for people with uh, addictions that addiction becomes a primary occupation in their mm. life, and that's what's problematic, right? Yeah. And everything revolves around that, and and that's I think that's part of why, as well as the the physical dependence, I think that's why addictions are hard to beat because over time your social network develops relative to the, to the addiction, right? And yeah. um, you do the way you, you structure a day, a week, it all revolves around it. So there's a really strong occupational dimension to it. And if you, you take that away, you know, what does it leaves a really big occupational hole. And mm. uh, a lot of the, I work with people who had, uh, people in methadone programs, but also people who, a lot of older guys who were sleeping rough and were, were really had been chronic alcoholics. And they used to say to me, well, what are, you know, if I, if I didn't drink all day, what, what the hell would I do? And who would I hang out with? And, of course, that was part of the problem. They'd come out of the unit and go and hang out with their buddies under mm. the bridge. And that way of being together was drinking. And so uh, that, but. Uh, I'm, I'm a real believer in the, the value of things. Like we had a great workshop there. We're actually doing woodwork. It was great for these guys. But what we did, we had a program running for Aboriginal clients. What they wanted was to do stuff that actually was going to contribute back to their own communities. So at one stage we had a group of uh, older Aboriginal guys helping build a playground. That's cool. For Aboriginal kids, and that you know that th- these are my early days of thinking about the power of yeah. meaningful occupation and the cultural dimension of it as well, and what mobilizes people to to engage. And that was that was more meaningful to them. And I, I think my experience of working with Aboriginal people is that the. Uh, a collective way of being rather individualistic. Yep. They were motivated and it was meaningful for them to to build this playground because it was about kids and other people. It wasn't about me and my treatment. Yeah, um, yeah. But they really got motivated around that. So, you know, I really enjoyed that time. It's, it's a challenging area in lots of ways too. But yeah, definitely. I learned a lot working in that space. I can imagine. I worked, I worked with, I never worked in specific drug and alcohol services, but obviously I worked with a lot of people with uh, drug and alcohol issues and, you know, people in suboxone programs and that kind of thing. And one of what you said before is what was some of the examples I use often with my students now is like I've worked with people who their sole purpose for taking drugs was to fill a social need. Yeah. And that yeah. was like yeah. so. If- it, it's a vehicle or, or, you know, it's not the thing itself. That's yeah. absolutely right. And when you can see that, I, I think that's a, an insight that we bring that's that's quite unique. Uh, but really the, the point of mentioning that was this is all leading up to where I got to and think about my postgraduate options. And it led me to enrolling in the first Masters of Occupational Science led by Anne Wilcock. So I was in that first cohort and that actually was the turning point in my professional career that was most significant because all of a sudden that thinking in a, about occupation, meaning, engagement, the social, cultural, political dimensions, all of a sudden there we were with Anne Wilcock 
reading Bronowski and Marx and thinking about occupation from these broad political, economic, evolutionary perspectives. And I found my intellectual home really in order to start thinking about occupation and and was so remarkably inspiring and so absolutely original in her interpretation of the conceptual terrain and that cohort. Actually, we've kind of all stayed in touch, that original group with Anne Wilcock, because it was so powerful and it it changed all of our lives. Was that in Adelaide? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. It was amazing. Talking to uh, Nita Hamilton the other day about about Anne. Oh yeah, yeah. She was. I think she'd only she was speaking to her or something not long ago. And yeah, I was like, it to me as because I'm out. When did I graduate? Ten years ago. Like yeah. hearing things like that, I'm like, because she's like up here to me. Like she was the yeah. person you were reading textbooks from and. You know, reading papers from and quoting in your assignments when you went to uni, and then it's like, oh yeah, my friend, like you know, went to visit her on a holiday kind of thing. It's yeah, I think actually, probably the more we journey along, I, I think the more that people realise the significance of her contribution mm. and its and its originality. Uh, her and, and Betty Yerkes, so you know, to see them together having conversations was amazing. And to you know some of the occupation science think tanks where you also uh, had Florence Clark and, and and that group coming together with us from Australia and New Zealand. I mean, we we did. Uh, it was a great hot house of thought of mapping out the intellectual terrain and and also progressing the research agenda for both occupational science and how that would inform occupational therapy. Though I would say that's probably still a bit of a work in progress. But, you know, I feel really fortunate to be in in that particular moment in time and that zeitgeist and feel like I was in, you know, in some way able to influence. Yeah, that's Um, amazing. That sounds amazing. (laughs) It was. It was very, very cool. But, you know, to... It consumed my life. There was I didn't uh, do much else. I was probably not the world's best parent. <laughs> my daughter's okay about that, but you know, I just I just lived and breathed that, and and yeah, was yeah. I then you know sort of finishing off my PhD, and that's all I did was work, be involved in occupational therapy uh, association stuff, and also occupational science publish, research, talk, and do it all again. So it was a bit of an unbalanced time in that regard. But it, it needed that at that time yeah. to really progress things and progress concepts that we now take for granted and, and philosophical underpinnings in occupational therapy that we now all take for granted. Yeah, yeah. Or, or were contested then. So, for example, you know, occupational justice, people – there were people who went, well, this is ridiculous and it's got nothing to do with us and what a bizarre idea. And, you know, whereas now we would all pretty well all agree that one of the reasons that we're here is to tackle occupational injustices and and create a more just world and a more inclusive world. But it wasn't that good. I was uh, actually this morning I was building my subject site because I teach for next semester. Um, I've got our our first years teaching them like essentially occupation 101 and 
it did make me giggle a little bit when I put up the occupational justice workshops and everything. I'm like, ah, oh, the irony. Having talking to you this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> great, great, and that's you know that's when it should happen. I'm a bit shocked when I go to places and somehow they start talking about occupation, you know, late in the curriculum, and I go, well, what's happened here? Uh, because it should be fundamental. You know, the, people often ask me what's the relationship between occupational science and occupational therapy. And I'll say two things about that. Uh, first of all, from a curriculum perspective, occupational science should be the most fundamental science that informs occupational therapy. Sure, we draw upon other sciences, human and bio, biomedical mm-hmm. sciences, social sciences, but occupational science should be our fundamental science. Absolutely. Um, But Anne summed it up really well in saying occupational scientists study doing, occupational therapists enable doing, together we help the world do better. That's awesome. I know it is. I know. We had it printed on T-shirts. I was going to say, I was just thinking, (laughs) I don't have just merch everywhere. Yeah. As our (laughs) acolyte. That's her acolytes wearing these T-shirts and we thought we were pretty cool. But, again, that was almost at that time people didn't quite, weren't quite ready for that message and it didn't take off in the way that, that we hoped it might. But I think now we might have come back to a place and really understand that, that relationship between studying, doing, enabling, doing and, and together that there's that really that the goodness of fit. Well, it's, it's funny because, like, you talk about, those early discussions and how there was argument and, you know, you were contesting ideas and now like I'll teach these concepts to our first years and they just get it. They're like, oh, that just makes sense. Yeah. Like it's just there's no like, oh, that's a silly idea or there's no, no like it's just that, okay, I can relate to that. It makes sense. Well, I, th- I think there's a couple of reasons why that's the case now. First of all, we have – the corpus of research, you know, the the research evidence is in on two things, the power of occupation per se, Mm -hmm. and second is um, the power of occupation-centred based and focused practices is more powerful than impairment reduction. So we know now that the, the power of those things, but we also, I think, have the nomenclature. We have the language now, and a lot of the concepts have been tested, developed, you know, occupational adaptation, occupational deprivation, all the things we talk about now actually over time have been more fully developed and more fully formed, and we can draw upon that. Hmm. So this is what I mean about being adults now, we have firmer ground to stand on. I would call it firmer epistemological ground yeah, to yeah. stand on and it makes us stronger. So it should be, yes, for students now, like, yep, yeah, got that, okay. I think one of the, the benefits of or essentially me coming into teaching now is also that a lot of these concepts that I learnt and I've used them in practice. Like I'm not necessarily just teaching the concepts and here's how they oh, might right. look like. I'm bringing real-world clinical experience of these concepts in action. Of which, course. You know, previously, obviously, because it's in, in the grand scheme of things, relatively new. Um, you know, what Oxide sort of developed through early 90s, through the 90s. 
um, which I guess to my students is probably, you know, ages ago, but to me, it's not that long ago. Um, but that bringing that sort of practice example of a lot of these concepts is, is I think where a lot of them can relate and it probably makes a lot more sense to them there as well. Yeah, I look, I, I agree. And I think that's really important to always draw upon those examples, but also to, if the students can adopt early on an occupational perspective, and once you've got an occupational perspective on the world, you can't unsee the world through those no, occupations, right? I mean, I will look at a TV ad on anything and go, yeah, no, that's occupational. I'll pick up a newspaper and go, this, oh, it's all occupational, you know. So once you see that, you can't unsee the world that way. Um, but I think always drawing upon people's own experiences, narratives, knowing and real examples. I mean, occupation is around us all the time. It is our life world. And so, of course, we should be able to do that. So obviously through that sort of occupational science process, the idea of occupational justice came up through there. How? How did you sort of, how did that idea even come to fruition? Okay. So... It really was an extension of the reasoning and, and philosophy around occupation, which when you get to, uh, okay, so not, not only is there people's engagement in the world largely occupational, then if you start extrapolating from that, well, then people actually have a right to engage in occupations that are meaningful and of obligation and necessity and, and that connection to human rights. And then I really would have to acknowledge the role of Liz Townsend in this. Her background from social sciences, because her, her postgraduate work was in social sciences and very influenced by the sociologist Dor Dorothy Smith, was then about, well, uh, and social notions of social justice. It wasn't a big leap, though it was an original one, to then start talking about occupational justice and distinguishing between the two. And I remember when I first saw Liz's, one of Liz's early tables com comparing contrasting social justice and occupational justice, I went, yes, absolutely, it made it really was a great aha moment for me. And... Then actually from there, her and I went on to develop the participatory occupational justice framework, which is exactly what you were talking about. Let's take these notions of occupational justice, which are both philosophical and, and have a link to human rights, but how might we create a vehicle through which those occupational justice can be enabled with people, mm. uh, not as not as a clinical endeavor, not at all. We really didn't want to. We really wanted to move away from. Uh, I think what had become, you know, there's lots of ways in which occupational therapy in different parts of the world has become a a very clinical biomedical endeavor. That's a wrong turning from meaningful occupation. So we wanted to develop something that would give people that framework to work with people to tackle an injustice. And that was, again, that commitment to, okay, here's this idea of occupational justice. We've, we've distinguished it from social justice. Now let's do the work of creating the vehicles through which people can actually do that. 
in whatever context they might be. And it's been so exciting to see how the participatory occupational justice framework has been taken up in different parts of the world. It's amazing. So when when was that roughly that it you came? Like we first came published uh, the participatory occupational justice framework in two thousand and five in the first edition of Occupational Therapy Without Borders, yep. which at that time was such a new and, and wild and out there publication. But yeah. <laughs> we'd, been work, we'd been working on it for a while before that. And it, I mean, talk about having no balance in your life. It, this was long conversations between Liz and I by teleconference. Uh, it was before even Skype was around really and written work and, and really hashing out some of the fundamental stuff. And that, that fundamental stuff became a critical occupational therapy. And the critical occupational therapy was an attempt to require of the profession that they think about important contextual influences that ricochet down and affect the power relationships between an occupational therapist and whoever you're working with and then the broader power relationships in society because what we do is always situated in those contexts, mm, right? Yeah, yeah. So we developed a critical occupational therapy that was there to underpin the, the development of the POJF. And, uh, you know, I still go back and read that. We presented it as articles. It was almost like, preparing a manifesto and a manifesto for a change to do occupational therapy differently. Uh, I I don't know that people always get that about a critical occupational therapy and I don't know that that bit of it's so widely read but that was a lot of work went into that and, and I'm kind of proud of that stuff. So when you were... Did okay. So was it research with a population beforehand, or was it the concept that you came up with and then you looked at uh, enacting it with different populations? Or sure, sure. So really, it was the philosophical and conceptual work that had been done and developed that was the basis for that. Yeah, and trying to get a clear alignment between a, the philosophical epistemological underpinnings and then what was created and a way of working with people that was also consistent and and empowering, which meant always being collaborative. Mm -hmm. So what we were seeking was this consistency of, you know, a a basis of a critical occupational therapy which paid attention to context and power relations, a framework which was always going to be led by the people that we're working with so a deprofessionalized model and then ways of working which were consistent with that epistemology and and those philosophical foundations so if you're being true to the PAJF you're always ultimately you should be doing yourself out of a role altogether because it's about other people having power and control and you being a facilitator, a guide, a coach, whatever you need to be, but not being in the driving seat. Oh, that's something I've said so often is that mm. OTs, our whole purpose should be, and it'll never happen, but our purpose should be to try and do ourselves out of a job. You're right. Like You're right. We're not, we, we don't want people to be dependent on us. We want to, we're there no. just to, we're there to navigate, they're there to drive. No, so, and that's when I, I remember when I first framed up a, a slide in a PowerPoint that I used 
I said, well, let's use language that's consistent. Let's let go of patients and clients and consumers and let's be people, mm. so we're people, working with people mm-hmm. on a knowledge and skills sharing continuum. Well, I have to tell you, Brock, the first time I put that slide up at a conference, people got uh, really quite cross. People got angry. Wow. Said, what? You can't, we just, you just, we just can't be people. Everybody just can't be people. I said, well, are you listening to yourselves? Really? Is that, that's very interesting. It was an, an hard for people to see that they might be a person with particular knowledge and skills, not the professional. And see, people still are really reluctant to let go of the power differential that comes with being the professional and having special professional knowledge and skills and seeing themselves really merely as someone with different knowledge and skill sets that complement people. So I I still remember that very clearly. I didn't exactly have a walk. I had people who were furious that I would say we're people working with people, sharing knowledge and skills. That was a few years ago now, but it was. I'd imagine there would still be somewhere someone who would probably still get their back up against it. Yeah. But that, you know what? Well, I kind of like that's been my sub role, you know, as I've always said, to be, <laughs> to be an agent provocateur. <laughs> that's, that's me. That's what I've uh, tried to do along the way because, and you know, often a lot of the time I've said things or published things, I thought, oh, this is really going to create some dissent. But uh, sometimes there's been a lot of passivity too. So that's interesting. I, I'm. I, I don't describe it so eloquently, but I've also liked to stir pots sometimes. But I for me, that's how I, I feel that's how it, it's a way to force people into being critical. Yeah, yeah. Because I think otherwise, yeah, I think too often, too often people just accept, uh, you know, statements or whatever it is, ideas. Whereas if I present something that's so absurd or so out there that they have to actually think about it, it stimulates a much more critical discussion. Yeah, it's like at WFOT, I don't know if you didn't go? No, no. But there was this great moment when Eliwani Ramagundo said, if you are being true to philosophical underpinnings of occupational therapy and enablement and empowerment and inclusion, it necessitates that you are an activist. And I you can imagine. there's a gasp. But, you know, that, that's, another, that's another turning point in our thinking about how is it that we engage more broadly. And up to, up to now we've been a pretty conservative uh, profession oh. and in many ways quite profession-centric, even though we say we're not, we, we have been. So now to think about that message being out there and people engaging with, well, am I an activist, I would say absolutely. I love that. Be an activist in different ways. But, you know, so see how far we've come. Oh, that's that's I brilliant. Love I love that, an activist. Yeah. And I, I agree, like we, we're on the whole, for whatever reason, however, you know, the profession developed over however many decades, we're, we're a very passive profession, but, you know, we're always the first to complain that no one knows what we do and we're always the first to pat each other on the back and tell each other what, that we're doing such an amazing job, but we don't seem to be able to do the bits in between. Can I, can I say this? I think 
although I support Occupational Therapy Week, for example, mm-hmm. I would actually rather that we show what we do mm. by, for example, why don't why doesn't Occupational Therapy Australia, why don't we all support National Social Inclusion Week? Mm. Why don't we swing in behind, you know, those big social occupational issues why don't we swing in behind you know national mental health week or homelessness and show the community that this is our domain of concern and these are people that we would serve and support i think we again maybe coming from adolescence to adulthood using that analogy a bit more we should be just showing uh, clearly uh, what it is that we're about through what we do and representing it that way than having to really continuously tell people and, and raise consciousness in that way. I, I think that has its limitations because it ends up being profession-centric. Oh, I think that would be I think that'd be much more effective. I do too. You know, you, one, you're, you're targeting it to the people that already have an interest in that sector or whatever the, the cause might be. And you get to show off what we do as opposed to what we are. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, and then I think our relevance becomes self evident. Hmm. And that that was always the one of my things. You know, we have OT week, and like I said, like you said, you all for it, support it. It's great. But you have an OT week, say an OT week function. Who's there? A bunch of OTs, and we already know what we do, and we already love each other, and we already yeah. think we're amazing. Yeah, that's not helping the issue that we're always the first to complain about, which is that no one knows what we do, and you know we're not taken seriously, or whatever it might be. We're not going to do that by talking to each other. Now let, let's get out there and and show it. I always I always thought that you know National Social Inclusion Week would be where we'd just be there in droves. And yeah, we're here. This is what we do. This is our contribution. Yeah, but really, awesome. it being about people again. So you know, we don't have to keep digging that that same sort of in that same sandpit to, yeah. to claim our professional identity. Let's just demonstrate it. So people go, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So after you'd come up with uh, the framework and so you come up with the conceptual side of it and everything, I'm assuming yourself and probably a whole range of others have now researched it with different populations. Yeah, absolutely. What sort of populations have you read or seen it being used in? Really, really various and that's what I like about it. It tells me that it does have salience across different contexts so that it can be relevant not to universalise, but it, because it's not prescriptive and it's not a linear process, it does mean that people can really use it in the context that they're in. So people have used it, for example, the latest publication on the POGF was in the Journal of Occupational Science just a month or two ago, and there are three case studies in that. One is was done with Cindy Rahal, who set up the uh, Cycling Sisters group in Western Sydney, which was a response to young Muslim women feeling very much marginalised and and unsafe to go outside because of the blowback uh, after the Martin Place event. And, you know, like a lot of hijab wearers were, there's a lot of pushback. And they started up, Cindy Rahal started up a, a cycling group 
with some of them that then went on to become this huge cycling sisters movement where there was a solidarity in being together and through the occupation of cycling. And so looking at the POGF dimension of which is raising awareness of an injustice, so that was developed through that case study. And interestingly that, you know, this uh, movement uh, cycling sisters then what happened is that non-muslim women went well that looks like a cool thing to do to be riding with other women do you, can we join so it's become this social movement that that has chapters around the place and to me that is that is really occupational justice in action uh second case study there was about refugee resettlement and looking at how resources can be mobilized again that's an aspect of the POJF. And that was with Akifa Suleiman in Queensland, looking at how with newly arrived refugees, what are the the processes for ensuring that in order to engage occupationally, to to move through stages of occupational adaptation, new environment, resources are mobilised to do that. And by contrast, we a group I've been working with in Justice and Forensic Mental Health Network looked at how they've recreated their environment to create more more occupational opportunities, including uh, an op shop, a cafe and a, and a garden. So it can, that's what I mean, that's the variability of, yeah. of, this, of the POJFSA framework. There's also a group of people in Chile who are working with women who are mothers with a mild intellectual disability that after a change in policy in Chile had their children removed from them. Wow. And, yeah, pretty pretty severe and pretty draconian. They were very able as parents but a change in policy meant. So they're working with them to both address it as an issue of occupational justice but to engage with the political systems to help get the children back and and for the women to upskill themselves to prove, you know, their capacity as parents or capabilities parents. So uh, I recently was in Latvia. One of a former student that I had in an EU project, kind of a long story, was using it. She'd set up a cooperative, a crafts cooperative for young people with severe disabilities. Uh, you know, the... <laughs> There are many examples, and uh, it's very it's very edifying to think that it has that people are interested, and and I just love to see that stuff actually happening in, happening in action. Yeah, that's awesome. Have, has it had any uh, pick up? Oh, can I just add yeah, something yeah, that was important too? Also, uh, from research perspective, Rob Pereira, who you know was, very well, I was about to say that. Yeah, yeah Rob used it uh, in his PhD. As, as a research tool, which was, you know, that was a really mm. unique and original approach as well. And in that way it, it gave, it was a bit of a road test for the POJF as a tool, to as a research tool as well as a research approach. So and he did such a good job of that. And yeah. out of that, as you know, the core approach developed. Because he, he was looking at OT's role in policy development or policy influence. Uh, it really was, he was actually looking at the ex- lived experience of people with disability and living in poverty and public housing okay. and then uh, did that was the qualitative dimension of it, but he also did a discourse analysis. 
piece on social inclusion policy and then a very sophisticated yeah. piece of work uh, looked at how the experience and the policy spoke to each other and where are the connects and disconnects. So I was, I, was, I was actually about to bring Rob up because Rob was through UFRAS, was the, the man who introduced me to the whole concept and the, yeah. the framework and everything. He's very a very passionate OT about all things uh, occupational therapy and occupational science, but in particular uh, is extremely passionate about, about occupational justice. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, he does that work and his work he's got a great what he calls pracademic role, yeah. <laughs> where he's a practitioner and uh, researcher, but, but really I would say is that next generation of practitioners who are doing occupational justice work every day and, and articulating that. Mm, he is right. most definitely very articulate. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I was actually reading that. The, the paper from the Ox Science, uh, the one you were just discussing uh, yesterday, and I was, it, it was cool seeing the like three different, very different cases or case studies, I guess, or perspectives on its application. Um, yeah. I was going to ask whether or not it's had any traction or been picked up anywhere outside of OT or if it's been looked at as its use outside of OT yet. Because like having a look at the framework itself, there's – Aside from like that, we would look at it with an occupational perspective. Like, there's other professions that are also involved in occupational science, and I wonder whether or not they've had a look at it, you know, using their lens, whether it's a you know, sociological lens or whatever. Look, anecdotally, I've heard from other people that it's used as a teaching tool in other disciplines, particularly, strangely, in the US, which I, I always find I've thought that was. Interesting because, you know, in terms of practice, we, we often seem quite different in what we're focusing on Australia than the States. So, but uh, I have no evidence of that. But look, there's a way in which the, the principles that underpin it and that the framework itself, yes, could, could be used in other disciplines, but what we would bring to it is our unique mm. occupation focus and our in-depth knowledge as, as experts on doing. So I think we, we bring something quite unique to it. I think that's what we do to most things. We can bring our unique perspective to, to almost any area and it's just a matter of usually whether or not we can, in my opinion, anyway, it's whether or not we're confident enough in it to maintain it uh, when there's a lot of external pressures that, you know, from a medical model health system and that kind of thing to you know, maybe stray away from, you know, our unique offering, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I think will help? <clears throat> I think that being able to articulate our occupational reasoning is really important, and I don't think we do that very well. I think a lot of it goes on in people's brains, but it's it's not so well articulated. Now, students always tell us that, right? So we've got to be better at articulating our reasoning from an occupational perspective. But also, and this is, again, I have been saying this for some time, I would love to see us claiming our specialisations as occupational specialisations. So as I have said for so long, we have a unique opportunity of having our domain in our name. So occupations our domain and mm -hmm. we're occupational therapists that's actually a gift yeah. right there but we, we kind of squandered that a bit 
And parallel for me is law and lawyer. So they've also got their domain in their name. Yep. Because my partner's a lawyer. Yep. So let's just have a look then what law does with its specialisations. So its specialisations are family law, commercial law, constitutional law. Oh, law's still in there. Mm -hmm. Okay. What are our specialisations? Hand therapy. Mm. Neurology, uh, pediatrics. Oh, what's what's happened there? What's happened there? We're, the occupation, our domain, yep. is made invisible. Yep. Whose language are we using? We're using the language of nomenclature of biomedicine. Yeah. We're dividing a person up into performance systems or developmental stages. Now, that then doesn't tell anybody really what we're doing there. Imagine instead in the next era of development, that we could proudly claim ourselves as experts in occupational development. Wow. You could work across sector then. You could be in aged care. You could be in settings with early childhood. Mm -hmm. But specialisation is occupational development. Wow, Mm -hmm. cool. Uh, How about specialisation in occupational adaptation? Ah, How people respond to challenging life circumstances and adapt to environments, whether it's because they've returned home from the armed forces and they have an injury or because they're a newly arrived refugee, but you're an expert in occupational adaptation, so you'll deal with that. Or occupational deprivation slash enrichment, where you're an expert in understanding the impacts of occupational deprivation, but that you also have expertise in how to enrich environment to create occupational opportunities. Those Mm. might be, they're just a couple of specialisations, but, man, wouldn't that be cool if we could identify and describe ourselves that way so people really know what it is that we do and we liberate ourselves from the constraints of this other nomenclature Mm. and classification system. I've never even thought about it like that that is fascinating and it speaks to very much like one of my interest areas is those occupational transition periods and how or where ot's might be able to best situate themselves within those whether it's um depending on what the transition period is whether it's you know in preparation to build resilience and enable people to transition through those spaces better or in things like you know natural disasters or things you don't see coming, injury, accident, that sort of stuff, in you know getting people back to either you know the occupations they previously want to do or some exploring new occupations to fill their right. needs. Right, and and exactly. So any of the old ways of describing ourselves are not really going to do it, are they? Mm. Even community therapists yeah. only tells you where you are doesn't tell you what you're doing. I just think that would be, to me, so exciting. And I, yeah. I, I begin to, there's a couple of people around who are beginning to describe themselves in that way now. I would just love to see us capture that and to, to me that would be a massive leap forward and I would personally love to see that. Yeah, that sounds, is there anyone currently looking into, like researching or anything that kind of stuff, yourself maybe? On how what the nomenclature is and and yeah. what it could be, and yeah, not not really. I think at the moment it's more about the the 
the dimensions to it at the moment is about power and representation mm-hmm. and nomenclature and and the need to pull I guess politicize ourselves a little bit more by claiming our domain. So it's in that realm of professional advancement, I think. And and again, it's aligning, going back to what I was saying before, aligning what we do, how we describe ourselves, how we represent ourselves with our domain of concern. So but I yeah, look, I think that's could be a research project for sure. But as much as anything, I I, I imagine a future where People would be describing themselves in that way, and then also we can you could work across sectors. Yeah. We, we would really liberate ourselves to do our best work in, you know, creating a better a better world, better societies, and and achieving more occupational a more occupationally just society. Well, but I- on that front, just thinking about occupational deprivation because that's been part of what I've been interested in for so long, and if I had a you know, another 20 years, I really want to keep researching that. But I've always I've tried to get, get understandings of what that would mean because if, if I was going to try and call myself, describe myself as an expert in anything, I would probably want to say I was an expert in occupational deprivation and enrichment, but I would still also have some way to go. But I just want to capture a moment of how powerful that, it, how it can be to really put yourself out there and, and understand lived experiences in this regard. So when I was in Palestine, I was talking to students and these are all people who have to cross checkpoints every day to get to university who are sometimes not allowed to come through, whose families are divided, who live very, very challenging lives. And I gave them the, the definition of occupational deprivation about, you know, being excluded from participation in occupations of meaning, necessity, <laughs> obligation, everyday life. And there was a huge silence in the room. You know, there's about 100 people there and they were just silent. You could have heard a pin drop. Mm. And then one of the young women just looked at me and said, Gail, you know that that's our life, right? That, that is our life. What you've, what you've just described is our what we live with every day. And it was a very profound and, and very moving moment, I think, for all of us and for me to go, well, it's one thing to talk about this stuff and theorise about it and have definitions, but this is a group of people that who this is not a situation of their own creating but who live yeah. it out. And... So we spent some time really just really, really discussing that, having a, you know, as much as you can have a heartfelt conversation with 100 people, we did, and got to some ways of addressing that and thinking about it differently and, and a bit of an action coming out of that. But that was, for me, a, a really important moment in my own thinking and development and yeah. my sense you know, going back to activism, well, at some point you've got to decide if you're going to throw your hat in the ring where, on what you're going to do it. And that was one of those moments in my career that was very moving and challenging and, and yet rewarding at the same time. So were they, obviously they, they recognised that that was their life, but to them was it the norm? Like did they know there was on an alternative and that this wasn't... Uh, what we would say, you know, this isn't normal? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Of course. They're very, very aware of that. Yeah. They're very, very aware of that. And in a way, part of my motivation for going there when I was invited was the head of the university said, you know, if you come, it actually gives a message of hope and support to our students when people from outside come here okay. just by your presence. It's important to so that they understand that they're not alone, that people do actually understand their lived reality outside and, and to engage gives gives them a, a boost and a sense of hope for the future. So that was already part of my, my motivation for going was to go, well, okay, let, let's see what I can might be able to contribute. Yeah. Do you think, and I think I already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask anyway, the carryover from looking at, say, let's look at occupational deprivation as a concept, um, looking at it in those what would probably be classed as extreme sort of circumstances, do you think that carryover is like 100% sort of carryover to, you know, us living in our first world problems and in developed Australia or America or wherever people oh, are listening yeah, that's, to? That's a really good question because I think what's tended to happen and because also uh, part of my focus was looking at occupational deprivation experience by people who'd been through refugee experience mm. uh, is that there has been more of a discourse developed around extreme scenarios of occupational deprivation. I think that has to be uh, counterbalanced by us also identifying and and naming occupational deprivation that happens, for example, in so many aged care facilities in this country Mm. where people don't have choice, they don't have control around what they get to do. Yeah. No Only that when they do get to do something, it's done in a homogenised way. So mm. we're all going to do this and we're all going to do it in the exact same way. We spoke before about occupational form and meaning and significance. People don't all do things in the same way, but somehow in institutions you, you do. You have to comply. Yeah. And then for people who don't comply, who want to maintain their, their sense of identity occupationally, if you don't comply, then you become a, a problem person. And most often what happens, Brock, as you would know, then occupational opportunities are withdrawn from the person as a form of punishment. As a punishment, yeah. Which compounds it compounds the occupational deprivation. So whether it's juvenile justice, prisons, and I don't know that our prisons are going forward. I think sometimes, you know, they're going backwards in terms of supports and occupational opportunities. Forensic hospitals, you know, but but aged care facilities, there are so many sites of occupational deprivation in institutions and really I see that as one of our huge, huge, huge roles where we should be standing up and going, no, People have a right, and that's like I, yeah, like I've seen that very, very often in in a couple of the acute units that I've worked in, uh, in especially in the the secure part of it, where you know people are put because they're acting out. Um, when you know the on paper definition is a, it's a, yep. a an yep. area with a higher staff to patient ratio because they need more support, but. Yeah, it's not hard to talk to the staff and work out like who's going to end up in there. It's the people that are acting out or acting 
contrary to the the ward's routine or the ward's expectation. Um, and yes. as an OT, I used to go in there and it was, it, I don't know, it seemed very obvious to me what was going on from an occupational point of view. I'm like, this this guy is enacting control over the only thing he has control over. Of course, of course. Yeah, no, I agree. So, you know, we that's, it's not, these are not extreme cases, but they're happening as we speak around us in institutions and facilities, especially aged care facilities around the country. Because I wonder, like, there's a lot of research uh, in mental health specifically around seclusion and restraint, but I don't think they're specifically using that language. So I'm, I don't know of any OTs that have actually been involved in any in Australia anyway in the, the, the research around. I know, like, Tina Champagne in the States has done a fair bit around seclusion and restraint, but I don't, like, even then I'm not sure if she was even looking at it using that sort of universal language of occupational deprivation. Yeah, sure. I, in, on that front, the review of seclusion and restraint in New South Wales that came out uh, earlier this year had a series of recommendations and I think recommendation 17 or 18 was that there needs to be therapeutic environments created. Now, I went, yay, because... Um, that's us. That's mm. us. Mm. Now, what we need to collectively do is really claim it. engage with that and say, well, a therapeutic environment is one in which there is opportunities to engage in occupations and have choice and control. It's appropriate mm. to that setting, but still choice and control. Uh, you know, so a bit more work to do then, but probably all up that the reviews of seclusion and restraint have been a good thing, mm. but we need to do the work, and this is where the royal we is us and association. We need to, to really stay politically engaged to make sure that that becomes an occupational therapy endeavour. Us, the experts in occupation, should be front and centre of that piece of work. Because I guess one of the worries that I've got with regards to the profession, and I know working clinically I was probably part of the problem as well, um, is there's there's really not a lot of clinicians engaged in research, like to be able to do that. Like I know plenty of clinicians that could tell me all of the like their experiences with the issues, including myself. But the research, or let's say around seclusion and restraint, is predominantly coming from psychiatry, nursing you know, all these other professions. And, yeah, they're talking about concepts that we go, yeah, like, that's us, we relate to that. But we're telling, again, it comes back to this, we're telling each other, like, yeah, that's us, we're awesome. Like, but we're not owning it and we're not putting our name on it. We're not putting our stamp on it by actually getting involved in the process of putting that evidence out. You know, okay, so I this is would be a whole other separate podcast, but uh, <laughs> I... These days, my research approach of choice is practice-based inquiry and it's where we acknowledge the knowledge embedded in everyday practice. So I've worked on several of these projects over quite a while now, most recently with the group in New South Wales and the Justice and Forensic Mental Health Network. And... This is where you seek to change or transform a practice through inquiring into everyday practice. So it's a action, 
qualitative methodology and you know there's I published quite a bit on this and there's another couple of publications one was in the WFOT bulletin on this project another one about to come out in the British Journal another one uh not quite there but you know I, I really want occupational therapists to think they can be researchers mm. this is a very organic form of research you don't need a lot of money you don't need a lot of expertise you need time to commit to it and you need someone with some understanding of qualitative research processes and you need a community of practice scholars but really transformative amazing things happen through this uh, research approach it's both a research approach and a, and a tool for for change and transformation and i really recommend it to people practice-based yeah. inquiry yeah i remember when was it would have been 2000 14, I think I went down to the Victorian State OT conference. I presented with Rob. Yes. And I remember, who was it? I think it was Rachel McDonald. I talked about it at the Victorian conference. Yes. But I just, I was just thinking, I, I think it was Rachel McDonald who presented, and it was one line, and it's always stuck with me about, or it might have been Tash Lannan. I'm not sure. I won't say for sure because I'll probably stuff it up. Um, but she was saying that any. OT who's gone through any kind of quality improvement process and we all did we've all done it we've all gone okay this is even little things this sucks let's fix this up let's make this better all we really need to do is add some rigor and look you're involved in research yeah yeah absolutely rigor and just the the discipline of analysis and, and rigor absolutely but no I agree so it's more the frame we put around it and I would say that practice-based inquiry is definitely doable, accessible, sustainable and great things can happen. But So I recommend people to go and read about it. There's, I can send you some of yeah, I'll the public. Yeah, I'll put a list of, I'll put, gladly put a list of references up and people can track sure. them down and have a look. Yep. Um, something I've been thinking recently just with regards to occupational deprivation is well, not specifically with related to that, but I've been doing a lot of reading, as I tend to do, of random things and looking a lot of, I've been looking at a lot recently about evolutionary biology. Um, and one book in particular went a little bit further than where we've come from into where this particular author thought the species was going in the future. Um, and one of his things was around essentially the incorporation of technology into everyday life to an extreme example to the point where he predicted that one of the issues that humans in the future are going to face is that we're not going to have a lot of well he didn't call them occupations but a lot of productive activities because they're going to be replaced all of our jobs are going to be replaced by machines and that kind of thing so he was predicting a lot of more lifestyle-type diseases and conditions because that was going to be our predominant engagement in lifestyle-type activities. I'm wondering whether or not, because it's something then I've proceeded to think about, well, what does that mean for the profession if the actual species as a whole is headed in that direction, even even if it is just developed countries? Um, 
where might that leave us? Because then essentially everyone is going to be occupationally deprived because the occupations themselves don't exist. Do you think that's going to change the profession as a whole if essentially occupation itself is changed based on a technological evolution, I guess? Sure. I'm just going to start with acknowledging that I think in Denmark they've introduced the idea of a living wage. Yeah, it was somewhere over there, yeah. Yeah, people won't have work and in the future there's going to be generations of people who won't work. Mm. So a living wage acknowledges that they'll be supported by the state to be alive, Mm. I guess. But, of course, there, there has to be... There needs to be some caveats around that and in what way and how. And <coughs> I think this is very real. You're, you're really on the mark with this as a big trend and I often talk about the impact of robots and robots as carers and robotic workforces. Sure thing. Uh, and of note, uh, I don't know if you know this, but one of the five professions least likely to be replaced by a robot is occupational therapist. I had I had heard that. So at least yeah, we're, we're in there for a little bit longer than most people. But so here's the thing. So we actually might be well positioned to be as experts in occupation and doing, to be the people who are going to advise on direct, mobilise whole communities of people around this and how they might engage together how people still might develop capacities but we're not going to do that while we're using descriptors of ourselves that come from medicine are we (laughs) but we might do it if we were experts in occupational adaptation occupational enrichment occupational development I think we we might be well positioned to do that so well that was this this particular author had already looked at the fact that there was somewhere in the, I don't know if it was in the States or might have been Germany, somewhere, had already looked at a, a company that was developing a scanner that got enough biometric information that it could predict someone's medical health issues with like 90% accuracy, at the, like now. So, you know, we're, we're, we'll be still be basing our descriptions off a medical model and there won't be any other medical professionals in it. <laughs> exactly right, exactly right. Uh, and we also know that there's, I don't know if you've seen the well-being of the Australian workforce study that just came out uh, late last it, week. I've seen it come out. I haven't read it yet, yeah. Yeah, so basically they, in that they identify very occupational stuff that people are well when they have a sense of connection to other people in the workplace and when they're doing something that seems purpose that has purpose and meaning to them. I mean, this is good occupational stuff. But the really interesting finding in that study was that there's a subgroup of people that have struggles, identify struggles, and and they identify these very probably people with chronic conditions. But but their well report well-being. And, of course, as the reason they report well-being is they, it's the meaning of what they do and the engagement they have every day that keeps them well yep. despite 
you know, have any struggles that, that might meet against health. So I think, again, this is, well, to me, we, we kind of know and understand that, but we could be doing a lot more with that because, again, that's going to be, we think about rise of technology and also ageing populations. How do you live with either a state of deprivation or chronic conditions or whatever, but through forms of occupational engagement, occupational opportunities and broadly, you know, being included in society, so social inclusion, that has been the way through which people experience a sense of identity and well-being. That that are the those are the big challenges of future. And we if we are really considered about this, if we're really strong about our unique contribution and our domain of concern being occupation doing, we'd be very well positioned to be in the driving seat on these big social changes going forward. But it's going to need to be, uh, we're going to need to be a little bit brave. I think as Barack Obama said, it's time to take off your bedroom slippers and put your marching boots on. <laughs> it, it's true. We we have to. And I, I, I can see even like I've been out for a decade and I, I've seen what I would consider in that time a big change in the profession and where we're headed and what we're doing. And just because I'm nosy and I read a lot and I talk to a lot of people, I can also see that there's a long way to go. Um, yeah, yeah. But we're, we're getting there. I, I, I'm really hopeful. I've, I've probably been around for longer and I saw change being slow. I, I believe now there's been a real uh, – it seems to have turned a corner somewhere and, and I think that things are happening more quickly now. Mm. And I don't know about you, but I was, I nearly wept with pride and relief to see that our president, Angela Burnt, uh, spoke out and we did a national media release through to Australia, speaking in support of the release of all the children from Nauru. I mean, that's a long time coming. And I've personally been involved in that battle for us to have position statements and then to be able to use them publicly mm. to highlight issues of occupational injustice and we've done that we've really come of age so to me that exemplifies how far we've come so now I feel very hopeful Brock my brain is exploding <laughs> good, with ideas good. now so Great. Um, yeah, thank you, thank you so much for for coming and having a chat and um, yeah, I've, I've, we've covered a lot of territory. We have, we've covered everything from the way back at the start to the future of the the, the species. So <laughs> we've, we've gone full spectrum. So I think, think we've we've covered most things. So thank you, thank you so much. Alrighty.